The Confluence Story Gathering Podcast is a production of Confluence, a community-supported nonprofit with a mission to connect people to the history, living cultures, and ecology of the Columbia River Basin through Indigenous voices. Find out more at confluenceproject.org. Among my people, there's an old saying that until you are healthy and happy, the people can't be healthy and happy. And these pandemics, because they're an invisible force, have such a great uh, magnitude of death and destruction in them, it is really hard for us to be socially healthy and happy. Welcome to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast, Indigenous Voices of the Columbia River. I'm Colin Fogarty, Executive Director of Confluence. The coronavirus pandemic has upended our lives, no question. And for most of us, it's the first time we've ever had to make major adjustments because of a global health crisis. For the indigenous people of North America, though, pandemics in the past have had devastating consequences, and those consequences resonate to this day. On this episode of the Story Gathering Podcast, we hear from members of two Columbia River tribes about how they're handling the threat of COVID-19. Emily Washines is an enrolled Yakima Nation tribal member who's done research and written about Native women and traditional knowledge. Chuck Sams is the Deputy Executive Director of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. He's also served as the incident commander for the tribe's COVID-19 response. They spoke together as part of a Confluence conversation held in October 2020. So we wanted to start off our conversation a little bit from a historical context. For tribes, the biggest thing that has ever uh, really harmed us as a people has been epidemics and pandemics. For those of us who are from the Columbia Plateau, the Umatilla, Cayuse, Walla Walla, Yakima Nations, their bands, our cousins at Warm Springs and Nez Perce, pandemics have been extremely um, detrimental to our, our people. We've lost between 95 to 98% of our population because of a series of pandemics that really began in the 1780s with the explorers that had come into the California territory. Uh, what we do know is the pandemic that first came through uh, were more likely measles and mumps. Uh, they came in either through California, the Great Basin, or they could have came through Alaska down in the territory from Russian expedition. But either way, by the 1780s, they hit the Columbia Plateau and they stayed in the Columbia Plateau off and on in three to four different waves between 1780 until the late 1860s. And in each of those waves, they had devastating effects on our tribal people. Matter of fact, many of our religion, much of our religion, the Washout religion that is practiced or the seven drum religion that is practiced on the plateau have some elements um, that have been heavily influenced by the pandemic. Examples of this is just how we treat our dead, how very carefully we do our dressings with those who pass and the reverence we give to them. But we have selected certain people to be able to do that. A lot of people associate that mostly with just a religious practice, but it really stems out of the pandemic in which we didn't want the disease to spread. And so we designated people in our communities who really had to take care of the bodies. It is no different today than what you have now in funeral homes and funeral directors who do, and morticians who do the same thing. Um, so each culture has a different practice of that, but they are practices that are to provide the safety of the people. Among my people, there's an old saying that until you are healthy and happy, the people can't be healthy and happy. And these pandemics, because they're an invisible force, have such a great uh, magnitude of death and destruction in them, it is really hard for us to be socially healthy and happy. Among the people, the Cayuse, Umatilla, and Walla Walla, when this current pandemic hit, uh, there was an immediate reaction. Our tribe was one of the first tribes in the United States to be hit by it. 
one of our non-Indian staff contracted COVID-19 while at a, uh, out on an event, uh, most likely at a basketball event. And he was a staff member of Wild Horse Resort and Casino. And that immediately put the Board of Trustees and our tribal community into a lockdown mode. We were very fortunate to have an emergency operating plan that looked at the historical context of what disease had done to our people. When we started building out our emergency operating plan in the 2000s, we were tasked with going and looking at historical records of the different types of emergencies we've experienced. Fire, what did fire look like? What does disease look like? What does it look like when your economic uh, institutions may be shattered for whatever reason? Earthquakes. And so we took those lessons and we made sure that they were integrated into our emergency operating plan so that we could act swiftly. The tribal government also recognized that it was important to rely on expertise and not political mindsets in order to combat this disease. So the Board of Trustees set up an incident command that was made up primarily of just staff with only one representative from the tribal government. And they charged that incident command with a large responsibility of dealing with this as a health issue and a community issue. And best how to protect the health and the community of the people, our economy, and then of course, our natural resources. So since the beginning, because of the things that we'd learned in our past, we knew that we had to be strong and being able to fight this because until we are all healthy and happy again, we can't make sure that the entire community is healthy and happy. Emily? Thank you so much, Chuck, for explaining and listing so much of the detail out from historical to present day. I mean, being kind of on the front lines of so much of that is, is just helpful. And I actually have this sense of like, I don't know. I feel myself exhaling because I just, I'm like, oh, Chuck's got it together for you. until <laughs> I'm feeling better about it. I mean, even though we're currently in it, you want to have that sense of relief as a, as a fellow tribal member. You know, I missed going to Wild Horse. <laughs> um, this is the longest it's ever been for us. But yeah, there's definitely some historical elements that are relevant to today's conversation. The point you brought up about funeral homes, I'm... Um, continually thinking about uh, our tribal members that are working with uh, the bodies and what knowledge has carried forward and who has been those knowledge holders and keepers of our tradition and which is rooted in our survival. And, you know, to talk about these pandemics, it's really hard because I'm realizing how little we've actually talked in depth about the 1918 and how much it's important now to talk about and have conversations about this have recorded conversations from natives hearing about our perspective and what's happening in real time. So um, there's a really great uh, resource that I saw uh, online. It's a master's thesis by Susan Margaret Mayer titled the four Pacific Northwest reservations and influenza pandemic from 1918 to 1919. And, you know, it was really a helpful reference or frame of mind. I don't know if you Matilla's done this as well as looking at historical contexts um, in terms of how many people had passed away. Uh, this study doesn't include you Matilla. So that's why I'm definitely offering that prompt and aspect for you. But, you know, the, the study really looks from 1918 to 1919, and it had, you know, 249 deaths over births during that year for Spokane, Nez Perce, Colville, and Yakima. And what we see is that 
you know, when you look at these numbers and you're like, okay, this is what we were looking at in the last pandemic. Is this what we have to prepare ourselves for this pandemic? You know, 75 deaths at Colville, 46 at Yakima, large numbers at Nez Perth and Klamath. And, you know, in, in 1919, the Office of Indian Affairs had said that there was so many um, people that were passing away, basically, at a fatality rate of 11% for those natives living in Idaho. And in Washington, there was a mortality rate of 9%. And to, you know, look at these rates and to think about these, it's not just numbers for us. I mean, um, it's also about who you know in these families, so, you know, I might not be close to certain people. I might not have gone to all their birthdays and gone to all their things, but we see each other in the line in Safeway in the past. We've been at, at gatherings. I, um, there's continuously family connections that come into place with this, um, both historically and presently. Um, so there's so many different families within tribes and we know each other. Um, so to see that there was a mortality rate of 9% is, is alarming and and we also look and see like is this the same rate that we expect today but i don't want to just have it on a a a heavy note as well (laughs) i think chuck brought in this aspect of um you know of of present day response and how and being a part of a coronavirus um response team within a tribe i think is a very important role and I'm very happy to kind of be co-speaking with you on that. And I want to have you um, explain more about that role and, you know, what you wish tribal members knew. So Chuck, how are tribes taking care of each other? I know you've mentioned in the past some of the work that's going on with Columbia River tribes and testing. Can you talk about that or share about that a little bit? You know, I think that that's the, the important thing. The, the data that you presented that um, you have regarding the 1918 flu, we did also look at our own charts. And the issue was for us is we had to dig through not county records because we were not receiving any help from the county. You couldn't find records of the tribes with the state and you couldn't find records with the Bureau of Indian Affairs. The only records that we could find were with the Catholic Church and the Presbyterian Church. And those were very similar. What were the births and deaths during that time? And we've seen a very large death rate, mostly among children, which makes sense now when you go to several of our community cemeteries and you look between 1918 and 1919 and you see a number of children. So, you know, I can see a generation lost in that. And I think that played heavily in our community being able to and wanting to react so quickly uh, because we didn't know what this disease would do. And, and to that end, you talked about how, you know, we miss out on those interactions. We do know that in 1918, that uh, we didn't really um, slow down any of our traditional practices, whether that was going to salmon, uh, going to the mountains for big game and for berries and for roots. And we are very social people. Our interconnection with all of our cousins on the plateau require us to travel and participate in those cultural events. That's how we intermarry and how we grow wealth and share wealth. And so we saw some and, and made some extrapolations that that's how the disease continued to spread for so long, the flu, uh, among our people. We were in a circular effect. Some of the harder decisions for our community to take when we enacted our emergency operating plan was restricting them travel. We were the first tribe to restrict travel for all staff and all community members to a 75 mile radius limit. Now, they were allowed to go and practice uh, first foods because we this, this disease hit in the spring. We still had people going uh, out to go pick roots. We still had people going to go catch the salmon runs on the Columbia. 
but we made sure that they understood the restrictions that they had to stay within their family pods, which is very hard for us when you want to go and see extended family. You want to be with your friends and cousins on the Yakima. I grew up on the big river uh, fishing for my grandfather, and we were a mixture of folks who were from the Yakima and Warm Springs who all fished both on the Oregon and Washington side. And my sister, who continues to fish on the big river, had to tell our, our extended relations and our kin, I can't fish next to you or beside you right now. I have to only fish within my immediate family. Those were hard decisions. To, to get to that point, uh, we also had to come up with some images that uh, would demonstrate to the tribal membership how devastating this could actually be. It was important for us to illustrate clearly uh, to the tribal membership that, you know, travel beyond the 75 miles, travel beyond our ceded territories could have a devastating effect. Um, and that, I have to say, was the hardest thing for the longest time uh, for our tribal membership to understand because we're such a communal people. And so we had to look at other aspects within our community um, that would continue to, to present that. And what I really appreciated was our longhouse leaders who told us that there would come a time that we'd been told these stories before, that we had to not, we had to have be not selfless, selfish, but to be selfless. And some of those selfless acts may look selfish, i.e. In, in meaning that we have to stay among our only immediate family pod. We're not based on a nuclear family. We're based on an extended family and a kinship that has sustained us since time immemorial. And so I, I appreciate you talking about, you know, how, how we're dealing with this now how the Yakima Nation is dealing with it and how we're seeing across the plateau. Because you know, there are many of us that want to go to Legends, as people who want to come to the uh, Wild Horse Resort and Casino, who want to go to Clearwater at Nez Perce and want to go down and, and, and participate in the powwows that are happening at Warm Springs. But right now, in order for us to be selfless, we need to be able to protect each and every one of us so that we can continue our way of life. And that's how we've been explaining it to our tribal membership. You know, I've lost two uncles to coronavirus. I've lost my language teacher. There's um, just different people in the community that I know I'm not going to see anymore. And I think a hard conversation that we're also having in regarded to this whole pandemic is we're also seeing an increase in drug and alcohol um, related incidents and ac accidents or overdoses, as well as uh, suicide increases. And so this aspect that you're talking about and bringing up with regards to um, the social dynamics, how do we, you know, how am I in a store with my sister or my cousin and not able to hug them, not able to embrace them, not able to see them? You know, I haven't been to the store that's down the road since March, which is crazy, but I just, I know the social dynamic of it is so hard and emotionally tough that I don't know if they could not, come up and embrace me. Um, but I do think that there is some aspect to having, um, being very honest about that grief process, you know, and, and sharing like, you know, I definitely am somebody that um, has a response to it. I talk to a professional about that every week. And sometimes I think there's a taboo with having an I don't, I'm trying to think about the amount of people growing up that I saw that was like, Hey, I'm in counseling or, Hey, I talked to somebody cause it's so tough. And I can't, I scrap, I scramble for those examples. And so, you know, I, I always want to bring that forward to people about, you know, finding in ways to take care of yourself. And I appreciate you helping 
strengthen that message because it, it's something that I have to talk to my children about. I have three kids, 11 and under, and they go through it, man. They've been seeing each other day in, day out. And I'm just, I say, you know, we have to take care of each other. We have to take care of our, um, ourselves. We have to take care of each other. And I have to demonstrate that as a parent. Um, you did a couple of videos to, to demonstrate, to show that, to show hey, how you can do social distancing. But, you know, we're used to uh, my own youngest daughter who is in second grade is used to spending time with her grandmother, but she can't right now because um, we don't know who's a carrier and who's not. And she's very sad. It's been eight months of really not being able to, to be by her grandmother's side. Uh, and to help our tribal membership understand that, we did small videos with uh, our katsas to tell them, telling them, you know, I still love you. There are different ways to stand between a screen door uh, to be able to do the calls and to teach our elders how to use FaceTime and uh, videoing chats. Um, but, you know, we've also seen an increase of our tribal employees, our employee assistance program, and at the Yellowhawk Health Center where folks are asking for more counseling. And we've been able to use technology to, to an extent, but, you know, people are missing that human contact that, you know, I, I need to see and feel you in the same room uh, to express the things that I'm going through. And, and I think that has been very hard on all of our community during this time of COVID. That was Chuck Sams of the Confederated Tribes of the Umatilla Indian Reservation. And we also heard from Emily Washines of the Yakima Nation. They spoke during a Confluence conversation event in October 2020. To find out more about Confluence and the five completed sites along the Columbia River system, check out our website, confluenceproject.org. Remember, Confluence is a community-supported nonprofit. We can only do this work because of the generous support from the Friends of Confluence, and that's you. Join us today at confluenceproject.org. Thanks for listening to the Confluence Story Gathering podcast. For more episodes, visit confluenceproject.org or wherever you get your podcasts.